Damn. Well, uh, sorry about the music there. I thought I had the system worked out. But, uh, <laughs> uh, welcome to Left Reckoning. Uh, I'm Matt Leck. With me is David Griscom. David, hello on this abrupt episode 27. Hey, man. I'm very ready for it. Just like my own uh, 27th birthday happened a lot quicker than you expected. Um, we're going to be joined in a little bit by Victor Puji to talk a little bit about what's going on in Brazil and uh, to talk about brave Bolsonaro as he stands against a deadly case of the hiccups. Um, Victor will also be joining us for a little bit in the post game too. Uh, so be sure to check that out at patreon.com slash love reckoning uh, a little bit later in the show uh, bosses, they suck and we all know you'd be happier if you'd see them less. Uh, we'll be breaking down what a four day trial, a work week showed in Iceland and uh, much, much, much more in the post game. Um, Let's just describe for folks what they saw at the cold opening there in case they were unaware. Um, (laughs) Now, look, yeah, exactly. Now, Bolsonaro's hired his own forensics team and they've argued in court that that was just a chair creaking. (laughs) But we've hired our forensics team and I've looked at the waveform. I'm an expert myself. I've been doing audio production work for seven years um mm-hmm. so and uh that was a fart especially subsequent uh information we found out that Bolsonaro is is in uh the hospital with hiccups and now the thing about that is like that must i don't think those are like the normal hiccups like i think there's mm. some gastrointestinal going on not the normal hiccups because um look nothing that related bolsonaro is normal let's get that straight right here yeah like we've all heard of this like horror story like of the guy who got hiccups and it never went away right you remember that as a kid yeah and like the uh, now i do not think and i could be wrong about this but i don't think we live in a universe um with god that like wants to intervene to the point where uh, somebody as deserved as Bolsonaro ends up getting such an unlikely case of permanent hiccups. I think it's probably because he got stabbed in the guts um, and it's coming back to bite him. But uh, Or he's just lying there's something else going on. But anyway, um, Bolsonaro, I don't know. Like It, it depends electorally, like get well soon. Like What, what does it mean? Yeah. It really depends. Well, I mean, the funny thing about Bolsonaro is he does have this knack whenever he is in trouble politically. Um, he always seems to have these massive, you know, health scares. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've not seen any other world leader um, in a hospital bed as I have seen yes. Bolsonaro over the past few years. I was joking on Twitter saying it's just because he wants to test the resiliency of the Brazilian healthcare system, you know, that he's constantly coming up with new ailments uh, to make sure that everybody's on their toes. But it really is something else. Yeah. Um, Especially for somebody who, you know, much like Trump did, um, you know, prides himself as like the, some kind of like superhuman specimen who like can't get sick. Well, that was the thing is we, we were, we subsequently found out how close we were <laughs> to getting Trump die from COVID, which again, mm-hmm. like this is why I don't think I live in a universe with this sort of benevolent God that loves to do fun shit. <laughs> um, because if Trump had died from a disease, uh, a spread of a virus, that he had been downplayed from the very start. It would have been, it's just, that's poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, whether it would have, um, you know, got through to enough people to have mattered on a level to save us from like future pandemics or to do, you know, take care, take any other major mass collective actions remains to be seen, but it would have been funny. Mm-hmm. Something we all deserve for sure. Exactly. Um, 
we'll have Victor on a little bit to help us break all of that down. Um, but before we get to that, uh, we have to talk a little bit about domestic politics here in the United States. Um, it's still anyone's guess what's going to happen re uh, regarding this infrastructure bill or the budget reconciliation process. Um, let's start with the good news, though, for sure. Uh, Bernie Sanders uh, continues to stand, frankly, almost alone most of the time fighting for the American working people. And he's trying to use the tools at his disposal um, to pressure Democrats into putting a lot of good stuff into the budget reconciliation bill. Notably, um, and this is one of those those rare things where we do get really excited about what's happening in Congress, um, in relation to the PRO Act. Um, Now, the posture of the Democratic Party in relation to the parliamentarian who... I think everybody who has any sense understands that somebody who can and should be overruled, um, especially when we're talking about things that are designed uh, to help out the American people. The question still stands, will the Democratic Party have the backbone to stand up against a parliamentarian that is almost sure to try to block any of these more uh, progressive um, parts of the budget reconciliation bill? Um, but, you know, we should take some good news as it comes. Um Anyways, what will happen with this is certainly an open question. Yeah. Um, certainly with regards to the infrastructure bill. Yeah. I mean, just to flesh it out a little bit, like yeah. it, it, so reconciliation means it has, like you said, go through the parliament. And so it, and so the first wave of cold water to go over this announcement was, okay, this is going to be just axed out. Now, mm-hmm. Brandon Magner, who's got a subsec, uh, labor law light, um, makes a case here that um, the PRO Act would pay for itself so the bill's provisions for labor mm. laws, fines, makes it a budgetary slam dunk. Now, I, I haven't... Uh, the thing is moving so fast, so I haven't really dug into this because eventually the bill will become more concrete, but um, it, it really depends on like how much of the PRO Act actually is able to get through reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the sort of thing where... All this new spending is great. The other good thing is they're extending the child tax allowance credit until um, uh, 2025, is my understanding, which mm. makes it more pertinent because then you can then you have it comes up in 2025 again. And just to, I haven't been following that closely because I don't plan on having kids, but I did go through the calculator earlier. And if I let's say I'm earning seventy five thousand dollars a year and I have two children under six, that's going to get me six hundred dollars a month in payments. And then um, on my twenty twenty one tax return, I got an additional thirty six hundred dollar credit. So that's Mm. nice. And that's going to be good money for parents. I'm curious if we have any parents in the audience. Let us know because that those checks start going out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so like these are the structural things and. we're not going to get as nearly as I think as much as we want. Jayapal came out after this came and said that um, she expects um, expansion of the age um, of the eligibility for Medicare in it. Mm-hmm. David Dayan says he doesn't see that. So, mm-hmm. and and the problem is like so. What probably isn't what definitely is in there, um, or almost something I should say, is an expansion of benefits, and that's good. But unless you're expanding the eligibility, you're not getting closer to total coverage, and that's ultimately where like people need to be agitated for Medicare for all, right? Yeah. Like that, if we're if we're because ultimately, if you expand those benefits, you you may create a situation where it makes it harder to continue expanding that. Mm-hmm. Um, not to not to like say expanding benefits is bad. You just you know it's the politics of where the stuff could go. So yeah, how much of the pro act and that. 
good things um, should come in this thing. It just remains to see, you know, again, trust but verify or don't distrust and verify, I think is probably the better uh, approach. Yeah, and honestly, like the cynical side of me really does see some of these proposals that we're seeing in the, uh, you know, in this reconciliation process in the budget bill um, to just be a laundry list of things for Democrats to try to run on in 2022 to say like, Oh, we weren't able to get this because we didn't have a large enough majority. Right. Um, But again, you get these things in, I'm happy. Right. It's important. And I support it. Um, But I don't want to sit around and make predictions about what's going to happen in Congress. Um, I really wanted to, to spend this bit of time talking about the undeniable reality of the need, not just for climate action, but a fundamental shift in the way that we live. At this point, there is no other way to frame it or to understand it than this. Incrementalism at this point is climate denial. And that is all that we are seeing from Congress. Right. We're having these conversations right now about them cutting down proposals that were inadequate from the start. Right. There is nothing that is being pushed at the congressional level right now that comes near close to addressing the fundamental problems that we face. Climate catastrophe is an undeniable fact, but it's, it's not abstract at all. It's something we're feeling as we speak. But it's still presented in this way as if it's some kind of abstract problem that we're going to face down the line. 107 people in Oregon are dead because of this unprecedented heat wave. And it's workers who are forced to put their lives at risk to fuel the machine of capitalism. The American wheat crop is in peril. And an early draft of a UN report has shown that species extinction, widespread disease, unlivable heat, collapse of entire ecosystems, cities threatened by rising sea levels are all coming to a child that would be born today by the time that they are 30. We're, you know, we're talking about the tax credits for, you know, for children right now. Um, You know, we're not even in a position right now where we can guarantee that there will be a livable planet for the next generation of people. Let that sink in for a second. And then watch the theater that's going on at the congressional level. The Believe Science crowd, that kind of slogan, it has permeated our culture and certainly our marketing at this point. But politically, it's still symbolism. What's been going on this past week? The major news story has been Whitey on the Moon, right? The billionaire space race. Will it be Branson or Bezos or Elon what bloated billionaire will launch himself into space while the planet burns? Matt, if you could pull up this, this first story here, um, because you would think that the deaths and the devastation that we're seeing in the Pacific Northwest, along with the coming wildfires, would allow us to have better coverage of climate change. Um, but as this piece in Gizmodo points out, why TV is so bad at covering climate change um, by Molly Taft, um, I'll just read this first bit to y'all. On Saturday, Catherine um, Hio, I apologize if I mispronounced that, a climate scientist at Texas Tech University tweeted that she'd be appearing on CNN to talk to Fareed Zakaria about the record-breaking heat wave gripping the West. The next day, she announced her segment had been cut, bumped, due to billionaire going to space, she wrote. 
Aho was slated to appear on CNN as Death Valley was clocking the highest temperature ever reliably recorded on the planet on the heels of another heat wave that killed hundreds of people across the Pacific Northwest and Canada. Meanwhile, Richard Branson spent three or four minutes waitlist to advertise a spaceship that will offer seats for hundreds of thousands of dollars and earned wall-to-wall coverage on broadcast networks this weekend, many of which aired footage on his brief joyride. That's the reality of the media right now, and it does not get better when it comes to politicians and certainly to political media. Um, In addition to these stories of what's happening in the west of this country, um, today, The Guardian reported for the first time ever, we have this as well, um, for the first time ever, the Amazon rainforest is now going to emit more CO2 than it absorbs. These are planetary failures of systems. This is not, this is how we are able to sustain ourselves, how we're able to breathe air. This is the necessary building blocks of life and they're under threat. And what do we get from our political media, right? You get a political class that's proposing middling proposals, refusal to take the systemic action necessary, right? They want to be able to say when they go up for re-election in 2022, oh, we're trying to fight for climate change, right? We believe science, all this kind of stuff, right? They still see this as a political you know, football to play around with instead of something that is a moral Jesus Christ, um, just a basic survival instinct imperative to start to address. Um, so you're getting these middling proposals from the Democrats. And then, of course, you know, complete wahoo stuff from the GOP, which still, um, you know, is trying to challenge the science of climate change. And then you have people like rich pundits like Matt Iglesias, who Matt and I were talking about during the, the think tank on Monday for patrons. Um you know, Matt Iglesias sitting around scolding youth climate activists in the Sunrise Movement um, to say, well, actually, Biden's plan does address climate change. It's building some it's building some electric vehicle charging stations across the country. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's absurd when you look at the size of the United States economy and you see what they're talking about putting forward. And you remember that this was the promise that they were actually going to fundamentally do something. The pragmatists, the centrists, the realists were finally going to address climate change. We're nowhere near real action. It's score settling. It's appeasement. Have a monetary figure that you can point to during the Democrats' seemingly doomed 2022 elections, right? Oh, you say climate change is real? Well, look, we built some electric vehicle stations. We're going to plug some mines. As we're recording this right now, there are lobbyists on the phone trying to cut spending in both this budget reconciliation bill and in the infrastructure bill redirect in ways redirecting the funding in ways that's going to profit them and make them more and more money or trying to market themselves as green the verge reported that 92 percent of s p companies have vowed to cut their emissions but when you look behind the nice press releases right you see actually no really functional material um, you know, material commitment to addressing these problems, right? You, you see that green marketing is very effective. People across the globe recognize that there's a problem, but nobody fundamentally wants to do anything about it. And in politics, especially in the United States right now, it's, it's a great way to sell yourself as somebody who takes climate change seriously. But if you're not serious about what needs to be done, then you're doing the same kind of game as the Republicans. 
And I just want to be concrete for a moment, right? I don't want to play games GOP versus Democrats because frankly, the world is at a point where having those kind of conversations about the American political parties is almost a sideshow. What needs to be done? What is to be done? Believe science. Oh, climate change is real. Listen to the science. All of these slogans are now being exposed as being extremely hollow. As is this practical, practical, the Biden approach, which is feigning action, right? Putting a little bit of money here and there to some projects, right? Which again, it's better than nothing, but it sure as hell is not enough. Yeah, I mean, it, we're back in, we're still in like 2020, 2008, um, as if it's Biden's first term as uh, first term as vice president. Um, that uh, the, like drilling, right? Just a yeah. one metric. It, yeah. Biden's been drilling like a motherfucker. Um, like Trump has a three month span that's a record. Biden's second. Um, and he's been killing it, and it's because they're viewed as partners. Oil and gas is viewed as partners to the transition. If you look at um, all of Biden's, um, like Deb Holland, right? She should conceivably be Biden's most anti. Because yep. um, I think like there's a, there's another woman I can't remember her name, but she went up to Williston to basically tell the oil and gas Williston, North mm-hmm. Dakota, um, oil country, um, the the Bach and oil boom place, um, that hey we're we're going to be good. And the way they coach it is, it's funny. Like they'll steal enough. Um, Green New Deal framing, which is like, we want to make sure every worker um, uh, here is taken care of. But ultimately, you know, it's about taking care of the executives and what mm-hmm. their priorities are. Um, but it's, yes, oil and gas is, um, is, a, is a partner. And I don't know if we want to get too ahead of ourselves, but you contrast that with the way Lula handled um, Amazon deforestation. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, I have, uh, actually, I, I can. Yeah, pull that up. Pull that up. Um, here, uh, got there right now. Um, I was looking at this article here, Guardian, um, that, uh, Amazon rainforest will collapse if Bolsonaro remains president. Presenting academics and activists issue warning amid fresh assault on environmental protections. And this paragraph, a few paragraphs into it, Amazon deforestation reduced 80% between 2004 mm. and 2012 under the Workers' Party administration of Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro has uh, steadily dismantled or discredited the mechanisms that achieved that, like monitoring personnel on the ground and legislation to punish offenders and demarket indigenous land and conservation areas. Now, if mm. you can take tens of millions of people out of poverty while protecting the rainforest, I'd say like that's a type of politics that people should be listening to. I, I think that's a hundred percent point. Right. And also a good reminder of some of the kind of pseudo green criticisms of, of, of Lula that we saw after his, um, you know, after the illegal coup against him. But before we go to Victor, we talk a little bit about more about Brazil. I just, I want to hit this and I want to make these things very clear. Right. Because you can talk about the political calculus that you have to do dealing with Congress. You can talk about all these kind of things. But frankly, I think it's time that we start making the case to the people about what an actual alternative would look like and what we need to do to meet this moment. We can't fall for these abstractions. To confront climate change, we have to control these things. We have to control industry. 
we have to control transportation. And that's why the infrastructure bill is important. Remember, when you make a decision to go to the grocery store and you drive your car or whatever, right, you're doing that because of the infrastructure that's around you, right? That is what dictates our, our, our decisions much more than your own kind of moral, you know, feelings of responsibility, right? Access is critical here. And that's why infrastructure and, and having a, you know, a green transportation program needs to be something that's democratically controlled for the people, not just for special interests. We need to control energy production and distribution. That means controlling your own power sources, the power distribution projects and plants, right? And also taking into public control as much as possible industries like oil, natural gas, and coal right? We also need to be controlling agriculture and we need to be creating a national program to re-up um, and re-equip buildings with green technology and green ways to prevent, you know, freezing in the winter and overheating in the summer. I mean, th we have a great opportunity to do that after the collapse in Florida. Um, David Dayen had a good bit in the America prospect that a lot of these high rises were built after 80s deregulation and maybe we might have some other problems and that might not be the only one that has some structural issues so we absolutely like we need to check things for soundness we need maintenance mm -hmm. and then um future um you know infrastructure um on top of that like that like you'll hear a lot of talk about how great it is that we're spending 4.1 trillion dollars and um, you know, obviously the point we already said about the structural things being important, but we need to, we need to spend lots because we have not been spending nearly enough just to maintain the society that we've inherited. We need to spend lots, right? But also know that, you know, the spending is one thing, the control and the shift is another, right? We simply can't do these things with market incentives, right? You can't create nice, um, you know, you can't just do it through subsidies and you can't just do it through tax breaks, you need central planning. You need central planning, right? Um, when you look at the history of industrialization, what happened in the United Kingdom and Europe when it came to building the railways and using coal power and steam power was a world historic, unique moment where market incentives work to basically reorient an entire economy, an entire society in a different direction than it had been 50 years in the past, right? We don't have time for that. And I'm going to tell you right now, the money's still in the coal and the oil and the natural gas. And if we don't shift that, if we rely on this engine, capitalism, to deliver us a green energy, we will be waiting on a planet that is on fire. In the United States, we have a bold history of this kind of thing. We have the TVA, which has some issues, right? But it took a bold and expansive mandate for itself to understand we're going to electrify a part of the country that has not had this. And we're also going to use this as a way to reinvigorate the economy, give people opportunity, give people education. And that's something that we should be upholding today. We have to, this is non-negotiable. We have to have democratic control of our energy production and our grids. What's happening in the Northwest right now is an example of that. What happened in Texas in February is an example of that. Hell, what's happening in Texas right now? It's hot in Texas again, surprise. And we're already starting to see warning signs uh, that the grid might fail again, right? This has to be under public control, not in the service of private interests. We have to fully fund a climate core. We have the opportunity to do that. We have the need to do that right now. Um, and we must fully take advantage of any 
opportunity to capture more and more of the oil industry as what happened under uh, COVID-19 gave us a huge opportunity to try to seize those things. I don't care about the Democrats and the GOP anymore. We know what needs to be done and we need to make this case clear to people because the false fight between the belief science Dems, right, who are just willing to do green symbolism and climate change denial excuse me, climate change denying GOP is going to get us nowhere but a world of hurt. Here's a a counterpoint. Um, uh, (laughs) Too worked up for this. Uh, Those who attack space maybe don't realize that space represents hope for so many people. Yeah. That is what your future is if we don't do anything. Your future is, uh, you know, an escape plan led by wackos like Elon Musk. I much prefer a democratic socialist future where we take control of, of our society and of our missions. You mentioned Elon Musk leading your colony, the guy that's like, like accused a, a rescue diver of being a pedophile because he wouldn't use his fancy submarine. Like you think that guy's yeah, forgot about that shit. <laughs> man, this guy, this guy actually was so upset that, um, the divers who were saving those children. Was it in Thailand or was it in Indonesia? It was in Indonesia, wasn't it? Some, uh, I yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head. The divers who were saving those kids didn't want to wait for Elon Musk to design some special man, little boy-sized submarine. <laughs> this is a guy who has been at uh, parties and photographed uh, with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. Yes. <laughs> so, and he said sus about a guy that wouldn't use his fucking submarine. Well, he publicly accused a guy of uh, being a pedophile. Which Matt, you made a good point. I don't know if you remember this. Yes, which is that like he there's two uh, there's two um, possible ways that he's right there, which is or two like solutions are one he just libeled somebody, and two he has inside information probably because he's like friends with Peter Thiel or something, or he like hires private eyes or whatever the fuck to like sleuth into the guy, which is concerning and he's sitting on that information <laughs> like he knows about instead it, making it public. instead of making it public he's sitting on it and just dr- dripping it out um uh, in uh, uh, as a way to try to get his submarine used so mm. yeah but anyway thanks elon for uh, being just the mascot for just idiotic capitalism for sure that he is well um, in yeah. a moment we're going to be joined by uh victor puji to talk about brazil bolsonaro um, and what the future looks like uh, for the fight against uh, another version of climate denialists. Um, and also after that, we're going to be talking about the four-day workweek program in Iceland. Uh, looking forward to that. And join us all in the post game uh, to patreon.com slash left reckoning. Be back in just a moment. With Victor's going to be joining us in the post game as well. Yeah. So, uh, Party. Yeah, all right. We'll see you in a little bit, folks.
Uh, welcome back, everybody, to Left Reckoning. Uh, we're joined tonight by our friend, uh, Victor Pugy. Uh, Victor Pugy is a Brazilian journalist, formerly at The Intercept, um, and he's going to be hanging out with us a little bit, talking about Bolsonaro's brave fight with hiccups, um, along with some Lula news and uh, basically this really um, invigorating story down in Brazil. But before we get to all that, how are you doing tonight, Victor? Pretty good, guys. Thanks for having me. And, you know, we're all uh, sending the, the best wishes to our warrior hiccups who have been stuck with Bolsonaro for 10 days now. So, you know, it must be hard. Oh, man. Can you imagine smelling one of those hiccups? Uh, the rancid. Did you? Okay. Right. This is like the, the latest, like, breakingest news in these front is that, uh, you know, he was like rushed to the hospital after having had like hiccups for 10 days. And apparently, like, they drained, like, one kilo of poop out of his intestine through a tube up his nose. Oh, So, Lord. can you, oh, my God, like, can you imagine? Ugh. I mean, this is really, it Reap really what is. what you sow. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> what I heard around you. Like, can you imagine, like, having, like, the country's best doctors and, like, hospitals at your disposal <laughs> and then having the hiccups for, like, 10 days and then having to, like, be rushed to the hospital, like, why, why, why wouldn't get like that shit checked checked out before? It's just weird. No, he's definitely his body definitely needs to be studied by science for a long time. Because as you're we joking before, I don't think I've ever seen a world leader um, in a hospital gown as many times as I've seen Bolsonaro over the past few years. <laughs> I think this is a, actually a, a pretty awesome illustration of like the difference between the Protestant and the Catholic ethic with regards yeah. to this stuff. Like remember, like. Trump had COVID and, you know, they wouldn't let him, like, he wouldn't let, like, anyone, like, take photos of him, like, in the hospital or, like, you know, he, he won't be, like, pictured, like, without his, like, suit and, and you know, looking, like, strong. Whereas, like, you know, Bolsonaro, like, as a true Catholic, like, trying to make a martyr out of him and, like, <laughs> suffer publicly and, and, you know, try to get people to feel sorry for him and just, it's where, like, the, the culture difference really, really shines through. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can we can uh you know poke fun at bolsonaro because this story that we're gonna be told and presented by victor truly truly is horrifying um brazil just crossed the grisly statistic um that over now way over five hundred thousand people have passed away from the COVID 19 pandemic um and you know, there's obviously so much context that's needed, but I think we should try to focus on what is the most inflammatory revelation that has come out of these congressional inquiries into Bolsonaro and his camp, um, that essentially there has been a huge embezzlement scheme uh, regarding uh, some of the potential vaccines to for the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you just sort of present to us, like, um, I know it's hard in a lot, but we try to be a little bit brief. Um, what's been going on with COVID-19 over the past you know, few months in Brazil and what this congressional inquiry is and what it's found? Yeah, uh, so, uh, it all, you know, pandemic began as it began everywhere with, with people scared and not knowing what to do. And, and, and from day one, Bolsonaro was, was kind of uh, positioning himself against the pandemic like not as a like someone who's like fighting against it, but someone who's like not believing it real. I think for a while, like his his thinking was that um, 
you know, it's unpopular to have people stay at home. It's unpopular like to close bars and restaurants and, and he would have like, let everyone else do it, do the hard bits. And, and he would be like the guy who's like standing up for the little guys who, who can't get their haircuts or whatever. So this was like initially the thing, but then, uh, um, uh, it started escalating the pandemic right in, into, you know, real, like, you know, cause it, it's the first, right. In, in the first week, it's always like, Oh, some guy that like arrived from Italy, like is sick and, and no one could really imagine how great it would be. But then it turned out it was going to be really, really serious. And, you know, the, the governors, because Brazil, much like the U.S., is like a relatively decentralized federation. So, you know, each state's government has a, a relative autonomy. So, you know, it was governors that were that were uh, charging forward with, with, the, with the sanitary measures. Um, and it, it kind of became polarizing, like, you know, the Bolsonaro guys are the ones who are like, screw this, like, we're not staying home. And, and you know, the, the opposition, which uh, in the beginning was only like, left-wing parties but now like center right and like new liberals are, are grouping them together as as you know bolsonaro becomes so unpopular but um so this is the beginning bolsonaro kind of like sabotaging the 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 sanitary measures but uh it's not really to escalate when um when uh the sao paulo governor started uh appearing more in the media he's like a, a right-wing guy who who was kind of like elected uh, in a, in a pro Bolsonaro kind of, uh, a ticket in Sao Paulo. Uh, but he, uh, has presidential ambitions. Everyone knows that. So when he started shining, uh, as an anti COVID guy, uh, Bolsonaro like started really boycotting him. And that, and that's when, when we saw the, how, uh, how far he was willing to take this, this posture. So we see this guy in Sao Paulo who is a, a, a really horrible guy, like, you know, no credit to him, even though like he deserves some credit here. But, um, and you know, Sao Paulo has a, a, a public health and a, and a industrial public health industrial park that is relatively developed. And, and they like from day one, like they had a, a partnership with a, with a Sinovac, the, the Chinese pharmaceutical mm-hmm. company that, that was producing vaccines. And, and the idea was to have a transfer of technology and, and start producing this vaccine here in Brazil, which was something that's, uh, you know, uh, a good thing that most people w- would be uh, for, but Bolsonaro was really scared of this guy being being associated with with such a positive thing. So he started boycotting that vaccine, and he started by- boycotting every single vaccine. Right. Uh, so you know, everything was so disastrous. He was like sabotaging the the social distancing. He was uh, flaunting, you know, mask. Uh, uh, it wasn't like mandates, it wasn't mandatory, but it was recommendation that people should wear masks and he was not, he was like making fun of it. He was like, uh, and, and then, you know, he was pushing these, these, uh, magications that don't really work against COVID. Uh, I think like Trump flirted with, with that as well, but he quickly abandoned it. Bolsonaro double tripled down, you know, still, still is. Uh, but then, you know, it got so bad that, that the opposition, uh, decided to do a congressional investigation, which is, uh, uh, I guess, similar to how, how it does in the U.S., right? It's, it's, a, it's a right of the minorities. It's right of the opposition to to have this. And it has, like, subpoena powers and all that stuff. They, they can, like, uh, have people come and, and, and give explanations about things, so all that stuff, about the, the, the pandemic mismanagement. And the first thing that really jumped out was the fact that Pfizer, the, the you know, pharma company, mm-hmm. multinational, 
wanted to, to use Brazil as kind of the showcase for the vaccine. So the idea was that uh, we're going to like vaccinate Brazil. It's going to work. And then like we're going to sell our, our vaccines to the rest of the world using like pointing to Brazil as an example of, of as a success, success story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it turns out, and, and this was something that came out with a congressional investigation as they uh, had the CEO of Pfizer come and, and give testimony. They had, uh, you know, all, all kinds of people that were involved in that and they got access to their emails. And, you know, there was like literally like dozens of emails from, from the Pfizer people to the like Ministry of Health, to the Brazilian embassy in the US, to the, you know, a foreign minister, anyone they, they could think that like may have like the year of the president or you mean like, hey, really want to sell these vaccines to you guys. And they were like ignoring. And for a lot, for, for, for a lot of the time, like, people were like trying to rationalize all this stuff into like, you know, some like this ideological framework. Well, Bolsonaro is an anti-vaxxer. That's why he doesn't want to do this thing. Or like, oh no, uh, Bolsonaro is not like sabotaging this because he doesn't, he doesn't want to like help the governor of Sao Paulo, like produce his own vaccine and, and, and be popular in that. And, you know, all this speculation, like to try to explain why is like, is he behaving like that? But as it turns out, uh, they were uh, just boycotting those because they had a, a grift running on, on other vaccines, right? So they were like resisting to these vaccines uh, because uh, they had a different one that they were hoping to buy and, and in which they get money and on just the so, side. Right? So despicable the way that they rationalize it too, about the Pfizer vaccine, right? Bolsonaro says stuff about, um, I, I think you mentioned when we were talking earlier about um, the, uh, the, the clauses for Pfizer. He said like, well, the, what if you take Pfizer vaccine and it turns you into an alligator, um, right? Like just yeah. like the worst kind of anti-vax rhetoric. Yeah, and, and and you know, like there's there's an I love like presenting a Brazilian expressions and, and idioms, but this one's really good, which is that like you know if these motherfuckers could fly, we'd never see the sunlight. You know, we'd never get any sunlight. <laughs> which is that you know like, like these guys are, are really horrible and like and and you know like they don't give a shit. Like you know they're like running like trying to get you know like a dollar a dose like on as you know a side gig where like. Half the country's dying. But yes, you know. Wait, it, can we, can we just put this in, in, in clear terms, right? So there, the, the, this like embezzlement scheme is that Bolsonaro basically has 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 friends or a kind of middleman situation going on for these later vaccines that come in. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the, the 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 thing started, which is you know, as you know, with Brazilian politics uh, recently. The whole cast of characters is very wacky and and crazy, but it all started when when there's this uh, a guy who was he's a, a new to politics kind of guy. He was elected in the in the huge Bolsonaro wave, and you know his his stick his thing is that uh, he immigrated to the U.S. Uh, and you know got rich and he has all like this you know get get rich quick mm, schemes and all yeah. like in the in the also rise culture. and grind, yeah. you know. Mindset, you know, he's, he's a huge mindset guy with a like uh, specific kind of people who like immigrate to the U.S. Right? So like his Twitter handle is just like you know John Smith USA, you know stuff like that, right? <laughs> uh, so he so he gets elected and and and, and as a like a pro Bolsonaro guy, he was like you know oh yeah like screw all the stuff, let's change it. 
whatever. Uh, turns out this guy's brother is a public servant, like in, in you know, within the, the bureaucracy of the health minister. He's the guy who signs the invoices for importing and, and exporting. And it turns out that, that, you know, he got like this really sh- shady uh, document for buying of a, a Indian made vaccine, uh, which is not really in use anywhere. It's not really ready. Like it's not, it hasn't, mm. it's not ready yet. Right. It's in, it's in the development phase and, you know, fair enough. Most vaccines were bought while they were still being developed, but this one is like way behind the others. It's uh, more expensive. And uh, it's not approved by the Brazilian equivalent of the FDA. Uh, but then this guy, like, he's got this really shady document that looked like weird. You know, there was like, instead of paying directly to the to the pharmaceutical company, he was paying through like a middleman in Singapore. And he thought this whole thing was shady. And he told like his brother, like, hey, you know, there's something wrong here. Tell, tell the president that, that, you know, there's a problem here. Because both of them were like within the... With the idea that like, oh, Bolsonaro is like this very honest guy and uh, he wouldn't want any corruption to happen. So it's just a matter of him not being informed, because, of course, if you tell him, he's going to sort it up. Right. That was the logic they were operating under. Uh, so this guy comes up and says, look, there's like this really shady contract. I'm, I'm getting like calls from a lot of people higher up for like uh, pressuring me to, to move forward with this. Uh, and uh, so his brother uh, allegedly. Um, alerted Bolsonaro about it. it was like, hey, look, this is wrong. And then Bolsonaro allegedly said, oh, forget about that. Like, this is, this is, uh, uh, Ricardo Barros, uh, stuff. Like, don't, don't, don't mess around with this stuff. Like, just, just, just let it run because, uh, this is someone's grift, you know, that, that I'm, I'm not going to touch. And, you know, that someone was the, the leader of the government in Congress. He was, a former health minister who was a health minister during the Tamar government, who was a neoliberal government that came mm-hmm. uh, to power after the coup. Uh, so this is this guy who has like this uh, very deep, very wide connection to the shady on the world of like health grifting within the, the Brazilian public health system. Uh, but, you know, Bolsonaro was alert, alerted that this, this shady stuff was going on and didn't do anything. It was kind of like saying like, yeah, let's just turn a blind eye to it. And from there, like, it started growing. So there's now uh, histories of uh, other uh, uh, shady contracts like that, all in the same vein, right? Like weird middlemen appearing and inserting themselves, claiming to represent uh, companies that they don't really represent. Or, you know, and, you know, there's like this figure of like, oh, there's like police officer who also sells vaccines or, you know. And uh, so this is this is the, the gist of it, right? The People within the government were sabotaging the legit vaccines that are available because they wanted the non-legit vaccines to be purchased because that's the one they would make money in. Basically, that's the and the gist of it. It's just it's just so rich to remind people. I know most people listening to this are very familiar with the Lula case um, <laughs> and the allegations against him. But for people who are not, I'll just give you the quick skinny version of it which is that Lula, you know, a a president um, who pulled millions of people out of poverty, immensely popular, gets wrapped up in this, in these allegations of corruption um, that effectively boil down to him getting some renovations done for cheap on an apartment 
um, at a beach in Brazil that's not even the most popular ritzy beach or anything like that, right? And again, and these were all proven to be false and incorrect, by the way. But I'm just saying, like, even at like their allegation, that was the level of allegation that was enough to topple somebody like um, Lula. And Bolsonaro sort of rises up in the chaos of this as somebody, oh, I'm against corruption. I'm not of this kind of world. And now, after coming to power with, by the way, it has to be noted, American government support, um, is now somebody who is implicated in a corruption scandal that is not only a mess, but is so egregious and anti-human um, that it's, it's really hard to overstate <laughs> the severity of this stakes of, of these public lines. health like the public health is at stake it's not lula like even if that was all true it's not like hundreds of thousands of people could die from it yeah it's like it's like you know vaccines to a deadly disease and they're like running shenanigans and they're like acquiring these vaccines because they are like running a grift yeah you're and, right not only taking money off of the top but denying other solutions too yeah that's a very yeah. important and point. even like you know like uh uh let's say like they were like taking money off the top of a thing that was like superbly well run mm. and working properly like these guys are like taking money off the top of something that's not even working well right there's like this this uh uh this idea in brazil like because corruption is so widespread there's this 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 image of the of of politician that's like, yeah, he's corrupt, but he gets things done, right? Mm. It's kind of like a qualifier that people have. Yeah, Correct. you know, like he's kind of shady, but you know, at least at least he he, he delivers the the goods. Bolsonaro does neither. He's like takes all the money, but he doesn't do anything. But I, I think this all like uh this uh uh these corruption investigations that are, are we we're seeing now are is it's kind of like the the cherry on top of of a poop flavored Sunday that is the the last few weeks of of uh bolsonaro's uh government and uh now we're seeing like you know as as all things collapse that that um old stuff old corruption grifts that he ran when he was like a uh uh federal congressman are starting to to come up as well and and these are all like mm. you know uh small time grift kind of stuff that like you know benefiting like your friends and and all like you know the the, the police officers you know people like you know ex-wife like brother of of you know mm-hmm. his wife all, all this kind of stuff and and he, he is like uh super implicated in in both him and his sons uh who have been politicians since they were you know kids almost like uh his uh one of his kids uh Number two, uh, he refers to his kids uh, by the numbers, right? Like th- that's uh, th- how healthy his outlook is. It's like oh one, oh two, and oh three. Yeah, but oh two ran, uh, and they had to like get a special permission for him to run because he wasn't eighteen yet. But like he would have been eighteen by the time uh, he uh, took office, so you know it was allowed. But he was running like for seven as he was seventeen, and he was just like getting votes from his dad, right? And and his dad was basically controlling the whole thing. And and, and the, the scheme that he he was running, like Bolsonaro was running on all of his kids' uh, offices was of running, of hiring fake workers, right? So, you know, uh, I get elected and then I'm like, hey, Matt, hey, David, like I have this thing, like now that I'm elected, I get to hire like four people. So, you know, I'm just going to put your names down. Like you, you say you're employed by me. 
you keep like a thousand bucks and, and, you know, kick back to me the rest of the salary. It's good for you. Like you get some money without uh, uh, having to do any work and, and I get all my money back. So, so this is a, the, the kind of stuff that he was running small time, corrupt, like Rio de Janeiro, like underworld that got like propelled to the presidency of the largest country in the continent. And, you know, one of the largest economies in the world. So just this kind of ethos that is, that is working, that, that he brings to, to the office. And uh, so now we have like, uh, he is really in, in a very bad situation to the point mm-hmm. where, uh, where, you know, even he is seeing the writing on the wall that, that he cannot be elected. Like if, if things remain as they are, he's going to lose badly. Which uh, brings us to a, a very dangerous place because you know uh, it's when these these you know it's when dogs are cornered that that, that they attack right so uh, um, that is a risk and, for, for and all your families not accepting like that's the thing is like you you've got so entrenched in it that all the people around you like you have to fight for them kind of too like mm-hmm. the the incentive to fight it out is just huge that's t- terrifying yeah. There's no no reason for him to to you know let it go you know unless like some people offer him some sort of deal like yeah you know just leave us alone and no one will prosecute you but yeah, I think really. I think there's like a sort of dark coalition of just criminality that is under maybe examined in right wing politics like we talked about that stat of Lula cutting eighty percent of illegal deforestation down between two thousand four two thousand twelve. What do you think those illegal deforesters do? <laughs> like, right, the, like that's capitalized criminality, right? And I also think mm. Trump spoke for that in America too, right? Like, you have all, this class of sort of like, not the big, the biggest, but like ultimately like scammers and 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 criminals. Like, I I, I want I want to I want a book on that. Verso should get on that or something. <laughs> I got yeah, some it, contacts. We can call. Them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the 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 militia ethos, like because this is something that that you know Bolsonaro is is mm-hmm. very much a creature of Rio de Janeiro, right? Uh, and um, you know they run like these like schemes. It's just like these grifts that 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 are just embedded into the the the, the running of society, right? So it's like either like garbage collection, you know, they have territory control, and then you know shenanigans yeah. with garbage collection, or you know. Uh, motor, motorbike deliveries or uh, uh, gas bottles because you know you cook with gas here and and some people get have you know the, the line connected or some people need to buy these bottles and then they control the the bottles or or you know water s- selling water uh, a cable TV you know all this stuff there's like these small t- small not small time but like medium time criminals but they like become like embedded in 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 the mm-hmm. like fabric of the state right. And, and the thing you, you said about like these um, illegal deforestation, like wildcat mines, that that's exactly it. It's it's he appeals to the kind of people who who or like have this like you know ethos of I can just go myself and and you know like fucking like I'm gonna go find gold and I'm gonna like strike gold and I'm gonna get rich and like if only like these motherfuckers like will let me use mercury and 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 you know destroy everything like it'll be all right you know and, mm-hmm. and bolsonaro's whole thing is about like removing like these barriers to you doing whatever the fuck you want to do so so he's not he's, he's like removing uh penalties for driving dangerously like he's like saying oh you you're not forced any longer to to have a uh car seat for for your your kid like it's all these things that like 
you know, uh, I just want to do whatever the fuck I want and, and not be able be accountable to anyone. God. And and this is the start of stuff, but uh, yeah. The, uh, but now, you know, Bolsonaro's government, uh, and this is something I, I said, just a second, whatever, I dropped my pencil, but I was not writing anything, um, that his, his, his government is heavily mili- militarized. Yes. Uh, and, and these corruption things are getting to these military, the military. military officers, right? Like, uh, it was a general in charge of the, of the, uh, health ministry during all this stuff and now the army is like putting out notes threatening to be like oh we won't accept like to have our like names dragged to the mouth like you shouldn't accept your generals like doing these scripts you know what i mean but then when a congressional investigation like finds out and they start threatening so yeah it's 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 dangerous and, and seems to be unfurling quickly and just to remind people, American listeners who aren't familiar, I mean, remember that like Dilma and like Lula come up in opposition to military dictatorship, right? These kind of questions are very, very serious and, and, and present in Brazilian politics um, is, is threat of military inter- intervention. You know, when we were talking about it um, recently, you had mentioned that like Bolsonaro's relationship with the military is he was sort of like the champion of like the petty officer of like the small time officer, um, both in his time in the military um, and post. Could you sort of describe how that's spelled? It was expelled from the military. Yeah. And and could you, I mean, maybe mention that story too, because it's very, I mean, it's very much tied to that as well, right? He was, (laughs) he's an inter-military terrorist to fight for like, you know, petty officers pay, correct? Yeah, exactly. He he is the, the, the petty officers representative and, and that's where he, how he got his name. Uh, he, he got kicked out on the officers because he was caught. He gave an interview to a weekly magazine saying that he was, you know, with plans, like the, the blueprints for a bomb, he was going to explode like for, you know, in a terrorist attack agitating for better pay for petty officers. And, you know, the, the magazine reporter was like, shit, this is, this is pretty wild. I, I better tell someone. So they told him, and they're like, so someone's planning a, a terrorist attack. Like you better, you should probably like do something about it. And you know, the, the, the report didn't really identify who he was, but it was easy for the military to find out who, who they were talking about. Uh, so he is like a man, you know, a, a guy that was, uh, the raised that was raised in the military, but he's not really well. He wasn't, uh, very well seen by the, by the top officers. Uh, one of the, the generals that was in charge of Brazil during the, the military dictator called him a bad soldier. But, uh, you know, who's laughing now, I guess, (laughs) but what is, what is, I think, and I think that we touch into, into, in on on something that is uh, very relevant, not just to Brazil, but to what's happening now, like on the news, because, um, since redemocratization, which was a result of broad popular movement of resistance Mm -hmm. to the military dictatorship, right? There's like this, uh, mythology that, you know, the military just got tired and decided to give people back uh the keys to power but you know obviously it wasn't like that it was like a huge upswell of resistance that was building for yeah. years and years you know like that um and you know ever since redemocratization the military was kind of well domesticated right they were uh uh kept within the confines of uh, not meddling into politics 
and you can kind of trace back the the this cadre of officers that are are very much uh, ultra bolsonaristas and 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 who who are super willing to to dabble into politics and, and threaten the institutions to the UN interventions in Haiti. So the kind of people who are are interfering in Brazilian politics politics now are the same people who were sent to Haiti to do a, a sub-imperialist intervention. I love Lula. I'm a left-wing guy. I'm a Workers' Party supporter. But this is something that, you know, the Workers' Party should look very deep into and, like, apologize to the people of Haiti, apologize to the people of Latin America, and learn the lesson of it because this intervention in Haiti was disastrous, not only to, you know, everything that it was purporting to build, like the self-determination of Haitian people, was definitely not served for that. Uh, and and basically, these guys were sent to Haiti where they learned how to exterminate and control populations. Come back to Brazil, this is where we see the escalation of the militarization of violence mm-hmm. in the favelas, which has been always been violence, right? You know, uh, just going up there and killing everyone. But now it became organized. They had like uh, armored vehicles and, and tactics and know-how that was developed in Haiti. And this uh, core of officers are the ones that are now uh, dabbling in politics, these guys got, you know, they met, they, they got friendly and and became a, a cohesive uh, unit within the army in Haiti, uh, which is just a, a disastrous thing for, for Brazil to have done. And, and yeah, uh, this is something that, that, that we need to face and, 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 and learn that, you know, Brazil, as much as we like to think of ourselves as a progressive country, was complicit and more than complicit, perhaps, uh, a protagonist in the in the uh, uh, repression of of Haiti. I'm sure there's uh, people who who know uh, Haitian history much much better than I do, and and who who can be much more eloquent in explaining the, the the consequences and reasons why this intervention was so disastrous. But this is something that that you know Brazilians, especially left wing Brazilians who are, as I am, admirers of Lula. We need to to, to learn that you know this is bad and, and, and we shouldn't have done it and, and we should never do it again. I mean, for sure. And I mean, I wanted to sort of pivot in the last few minutes to talking about uh, Lula and, and in particular, the, uh, uh, you know, the prospects of pr- the presidential campaign there. But, um, you know, one of these things we've even seen from Lula post post imprisonment um, has been this kind of reckoning even uh, with the history of, of his tenure, you know, as president of, of, of Brazil and, and the PT in general, like, you know, this recognition that basically playing ball with Western powers, Western finance, et cetera, you know, it didn't protect them at the end of the day um, from, you know, from, I mean, Lula, when Michael interviewed Lula, um, you know, Lula was mentioning just like the amount of resentment uh, that Obama had <laughs> uh, toward Lula, you know, it's just like one of these kind of realizations that like you can play the game, uh, with Western powers and Western finance, but you're not sitting at the table if you're somebody who's trying to stand for for the poor, right? And I think, given the context, you know, in the history, I want to ask you this question, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep my commentary to a minimum. But um, no, but you know, you your commentary is, is eliminating. It's good as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, but if you look at the history of Lula, right, there is this pivot um, before he becomes president. You know, when early Lula was extremely fiery. Um, and it was a, a very big threat. And he does come into popular power on this kind of like, okay, we'll do like a middle of the line role. Like we'll allow the bourgeoisie and the, the you know, the powers that be to profit 
Um, but we're also going to make sure that we do the we do not just the minimum, but do exceptional works for poor and working people in this country. And we, you know, raise the standards of living for folks. Um, but you saw that that back, that backlash is always just sitting underneath the surface and it can come very quickly um, if it's Bolsonaro or someone else. Um, but I wanted to ask sort of like, you know, in, in response, you could see like, this is obviously politically slam dunk for Lula uh, to, be, to be able to attack a Bolsonaro. But what's the kind of message uh, that we're seeing? What is the situation in the U.S.? Obviously, people have been very happy to see some of the early polling uh, that puts Lula far ahead. Uh, but what's the terrain looking like? What's Lula's sort of uh, recent, uh, you know, politicking been like? Yeah, so uh, th- this is uh, interesting and, and a lot of things to, to uh, unravel there. So so th- the first thing that, that uh, changed the game, everything, I think there's like, if, if we were to, to, you know, plot the Bolsonaro government in a timeline, and if we had to find a, a moment for a before and after, obviously I'm not going to, going to put before the pandemic and after the pandemic because that's way too obvious, right? Mm-hmm. There's a clear before and after, which was when uh, Lula got his political rights back. Mm-hmm. So Bolsonaro was just playing unopposed, right? Because the, the left-wing opposition was uh, kind of focused and, and using a lot of its energy to fight the, the imprisonment of Lula and, and the illegalities that are associated with it. Uh, on the understanding that, uh, you know, it's not only about like saving Lula, the guy, but in, on the understanding that if we let them like get away with this, like there's never going to be a left leader again, that that doesn't get this shit done to them as well. So the like was that we have to like defend Lula and, and even the parties that broke with PT. So there's a, an assortment of left wing parties that are distanced from the PC. PT in like mm-hmm. different moments that broke like oh you guys are too neoliberal now like we got to uh, start a, a legit actual left wing party and even those guys were very reluctant to to uh, kind of associate with Lula all like took up the 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 banner of of free Lula because you know on a reading that this is just a template of something that we would do it could do they could do to any mm-hmm. any one of us so uh, Lula got his his. Uh, political rights back and this was when both the left could like go back to to being a a, a actual true opposition and when the right had to move because the center right was very comfortable and just letting bolsonaro do everything they wanted to do while pretending to oppose it but not really doing anything so now with lula like in the game everyone had to scramble to 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 you know, reposition themselves and, and actually do some opposition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and since then, uh, Lula has just been growing against Bolsonaro in, in all the the polls that, that have been done, to the point that uh, now on the latest poll, Lula is basically winning outright in the first round. So uh, you know, we have wow. a runoff election. So uh, from from the latest information that we have, uh, polls just show that. Um, uh, Lula is, is ahead and, and very likely to, to win uh, somewhat easily. And, and so this is kind of the scenario as it is. So we have a, a bunch of people who aren't Lula and who aren't Bolsonaro who are trying to, to break this, this polarization. Uh, I don't like to call it polarization because I think it's very asymmetrical. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's got two poles, so uh, it, it, would be, it wouldn't be totally imprecise to call it polarization. And it's very hard to break from it. So like all these supposed third way kind of guys trying to break through. 
uh, and Lula just kind of, you know, accumulating forces. Uh, we now have organized uh, street protests uh, that are happening kind of like periodically, uh, called at first by left-wing parties, social movements. So we have the landless uh, workers, the homeless workers, uh, which are probably the two most important non-party social movements here in Brazil, uh, unions and the left-wing parties, the usual left-wing parties calling for these protests. And, but now uh, more civil society kind of like minded, almost like NGO type mm. guys are, are, are uh, joining in, in, in calling for the protests and, and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, we have Lula, you know, shooting up in the polls. We've, we have a perception of, of corruption in Bolsonaro's government also increasing because of the things that are being exposed in the congressional investigation because Bolsonaro's platform was basically like, his, one of his, his campaign talking points was like, oh, these guys call me authoritarian, they call me fascist, they call me far-right because they can't call me corrupt, right? In this like weird, yeah. bizarro understanding of like, that, that is uh, shaped Brazilian politics and has shaped Brazilian politics for decades now as like corruption as the big bad thing that has to be con combated above uh, everything else. And, and you know, there's, I think this may be a conversation for another time, why anti-corruption politics in itself is not enough. We need to do more than just for saying sure. corruption is bad. Uh, but this is kind of like the dominant strand of, of, of politics in Brazil and how politics is and has been done uh, for a long time now. And Bolsonaro is losing like the one thing that he could say, like, oh, at least I'm not corrupt. And, you know, now that all these things are are, are becoming clear. Uh, and what is an, an interesting wrinkle and, and that is like unprecedented is that Bolsonaro is having a hard time finding a party he could run in. Uh, you know, it's just like jumping from party to party has mm -hmm. been for ages. Um, and also a, uh, somewhat of a postmodern phenomenon of like, you know, party less uh, types that are just personal brand politicians that, that don't really have organized movements behind. Mm. Uh, Bolsonaro was kind of like this kind of person. And he, he jumped into a, a, a party that uh, was willing to have him. We have like a multitude of parties in Brazil and a multi-party system. And a lot of, of these parties are just uh, kind of like family-owned enterprises yeah. where one guy just has like the stamp control. He can do like controls the whole thing. So, you know, uh, and parties, they get uh, state funds to run their candidates. So uh, the, the logic was kind of like, you know, we're willing to, to give Bolsonaro control of the, of the whole uh, electoral funding uh, if he runs in our party, right? So he went to one party, he ran, he won, quickly left the party because they were fighting over the spoils, over the, over the funds. Uh, so he's been partyless. So he's a president that doesn't have a party. Uh, and now he's, he's looking for one, but it's getting harder and harder for him to find because, you know, usually you would have thought like the, that the sitting president wouldn't have a hard time finding a party, but now he's becoming so toxic that even that, like it's, it's becoming hard. So this is a, a really interesting change from parties fighting over the opportunity to run him. Like we have one of the part, one party rebranded itself, changed its name, changed its logo, like, like patriotic green and yellow flag waving sort of stuff. Bolsonaro didn't even go there, right? So like they renamed, rebranded the whole thing and he didn't even uh, move to that party. So uh, we, we're kind of like in this weird situation uh, in which he's an, an unpopular incumbent president. 
that is in search of a party, but is, is, um, and you know, it's very far off. There's like a year, four months to election. So it's a lot could happen still, but it seemed like as things stand right now, he's going to have a really hard time, um, uh, winning. And, and again, this is where the risks come because more than, than, uh, a regular military coup as, as, um, uh, you know, it's kind of like the model of Latin American history. The risk is that um, police officers in 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 the, the state police is rebel against the governors. This mm-hmm. seems to be the the weakest link. Although there's uh, a Cuban gang movements both within the higher echelons of the military, but that with less pronounced uh, the generals as wacky and 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 a crude and and. Uh, bad as they are, they have a modicum of a resemblance of, you know, pretending to care, whereas uh, petty officers are, are openly revolting now. So we're seeing like, uh, and, and you know, during during the military uh, government here in Brazil, there was this, when they were uh, passing the legislation that, that was the, the hardest, uh, most repressive legislation that, that they they passed, uh, which was when suspended, like political liberties, you, you know, the, the AI five, so the institutional act number five, which is the, the set piece of the, of the military dictation. And when all the generals were signing in their meetings and, and the only person that was opposed to it was the vice president was the then vice president, which incidentally was the only civilian in the room. And one of the generals supposedly, uh, this may be apocryphal, but it's a very known history here, mm-hmm. very known story here, here in Brazil. Uh, the vice president was civilian was was uncomfortable with signing it, and the general asked him, "So, do you not trust us?" And uh, the vice president, the, that civilian guy, was like, "It's not that I don't trust you guys. I don't trust the guard in my street corner. Like, mm-hmm. it's not about like the generals, like you guys having this power. And 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 I may trust that you guys are going to use it wisely, but you know, there's like thousands and thousands of petty officers that are going to feel empowered by that." And this is what we're seeing. Like we've we've had like uh, people who are like protesting Bolsonaro, and the police arrest them, take them to the to the police station, harass them for a few days, mm-hmm. and then you know obviously like is illegal, and then they end up like released a few days later. And you know this kind of like petty harassment of opposition by these like lowly uh, street corner guards that that is is yeah. seems to be the the, the riskiest the- bit. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's certainly worrying, and as it is here, sometimes. Uh, I mean, not sometimes, all the time, uh, too. Um, we're sort of running up at, at our time, but just before um, we leave, and remember, folks, uh, Victor's gonna be joining us in the post game, hanging out, answer some questions. Uh, so that we'll be hearing more from him in a second. But um, I just did want to ask because this seems to be the play. Um, what kind of early signs are we getting that if Bolsonaro does not win? Uh, that he might start crying electoral fraud. Yeah, well, he's already saying that that uh, uh, he doesn't trust the electoral system. Um, Brazil does has a, a very interesting electoral system with uh, electronic uh, voting, uh, uh, not over the internet, but you know, you go to a ballot mm-hmm. station and you vote into these. Uh, uh, shit, I spilled some water here. Uh, you vote into these by typing numbers into a computer and, and you know, special computers that are built just for that and, and tested. And it's been done for, for ages now. And, and Bolsonaro is, is uh, trying to create uh, doubt over the, the integrity of that system. 
Uh, he even said that, that there was a fraud in 2014, which is why Dilma won. And even the guy who lost to Dilma had to come out and say, no, guy, dude, like chill out. We lost because we lost. Yeah. Uh, but this, this is, this is the, the, the plot. I mean, the, the thing he's going to do a, a, a Keiko Fujimori, right? Mm -hmm. This is what he's going to do. And he's preparing the, the, the discourse now already. He's already like casting doubts in the, into the integrity of the, of the voting system. And he's, uh, yeah, he's, something he's not as close as Fujimori. <laughs> Fujimori at least made it a close election. It looks like yeah, uh, exactly. Lula's beating the pants off him. Like, I mean, I, probably, I, do, I do think that is the pattern. Make it like very big margins, right? So that mm. exactly. I think that's the that's how demo that democracy is only going to get through this by big margins, um, because <laughs> um, yeah, the right wing uh, they they'll challenge it and they have the course and like they'll be able to maybe do something. But uh, yeah. Um, anything else we need to uh, cover, guys? Yeah, no. I just have a, a quick uh, last uh, thing that is is somewhat important. You guys will remember uh, the murder of of Malia, Marielle Franco. Yeah, uh, years ago, she was a, a, a city councilor here in Rio. Uh, she was uh, very known for her work against the the militias that uh, to which Bolsonaro is associated. This investigation has been dragging for a long, long time with no results. And the uh, two uh, people who were heading this investigation have just quit saying that they are being interfered with and, and not let uh, them do the work. So uh, something fishy going on there as well. Uh, there's some indicia uh, of involvement of Bolsonaro with these militias. Uh, I have produced a video for The Intercept ages ago that explained this very well. So uh, I suggest people watch it, but this is uh, something to be cognizant of as well. Uh, the Marielle investigations are not going anywhere and people are being pressured not to fully investigate it. So, uh, yeah, Jesus, troublesome. Jesus. We'll definitely be keeping our eye on that. Uh, folks should definitely be following Victor. We'll be putting uh, ways to do that in the show notes um, below on this video. Um, and Victor will be joining us in just a couple minutes in the post game. Uh, so thanks so much, Victor, for hanging out with us tonight. Right. Yeah, of course. See you guys in a bit. See you a little See bit, soon. Victor. All right. Do we need to take a little break ourselves or we want to roll i can roll if you're if Let's you're good roll. to go matt so yeah so david it looks like 80 uh what is it six percent uh wrote over my notes in people in iceland are already on the four hour four day if not four hour <laughs> four hour a week would be great too <laughs> the four day work week that's the goal yeah i mean this is an exciting uh story and we wanted to note it here it's something that makes a lot of sense i think intuitively to people um, that a significant amount of time at the workplace uh, could functionally be reduced, uh, meaning that you have more time to spend with your family and your friends, listening to shows like Left Reckoning at patreon.com slash Left Reckoning, um, you know, playing music, cooking food, living your damn life. Um, playing old and Wild West uh, card games that have gone uh, extinct, <laughs> like I've been researching lately. <laughs> go on for days and days and days um you know but i mean basically the idea that you know the 40 hour um a week work week is something that was constructed um and it was something that was developed in a very particular set of circumstances um to benefit a very specific group of people namely uh the the bourgeoisie and the ruling class right and remember i mean the 40 hour work week was a victory against essentially a seven day um a week work week right where you had no time to yourself um and you know there's been a lot of people 
um, who have made arguments for a long time that as we get more advanced technologically, uh, that hopefully that would mean that people would be liberated from work. Unfortunately, the, the deck of power has been stacked so much in favor of, of those who benefit from extracting a value from labor and from workers uh, that that has been the case. So all of the gains of technological advancement have gone to the very, very few. But still, this idea that we could be working less um, is obviously extremely inspiring. And we have some proof now um, that it works. Um, a long time, uh, years long study um, in Iceland, a country, in a small country, it should be noted, but, um, you know, a significant country nonetheless, that between 2015 and 2019, a UK-based uh, think tank called Autonomy um, ran this study, um, basically shifting workers in Iceland to a four-day work week. And I believe now 86% of workers in Iceland are now on this schedule and it has found that not only um, does product productivity not go down, it goes up along with happier people, people who are living fuller lives, um, people who are self-reporting that they're healthier, um, all while not seeing any reductions in their wages. That's a critical thing, by the way, um, with the four-day uh, workweek reduction is that less work with no cuts in pay. Right. And what we're seeing right now is that this kind of fear that it would be not be beneficial for, um, you know, for capital have been proven to be incorrect. And we're seeing more and more, um, you know, pushes for this in Spain and in other countries as well. Do you have anything top line here before? Because I want to make a good structural point, though, about the four day uh, work week, too. Oh, I mean, my real brief point is uh, Magic Johnson should uh, step out and uh, be the spokesperson for the 32-hour work week. He could put his number 32 um, front and center. Um, uh, that's my top line. I like the idea of a 32-hour work week. I mean, the 32-hour work week, I mean, the, the fact is that it works. And it works even by, like, capital's prerogatives, too, right? I think as socialists, though, we shouldn't lean too hard into that. Because here's the thing, um, is that while we're seeing the opening in countries like Iceland and in places where there have been years and years and years of militant labor organizing, like in Northern Spain, um, something like that coming to the United States would require us working people across this country demanding it. And I think if we demand it, we shouldn't do it on capital's terms. Right. So like, yes, it's very, very exciting. Right. Um, and it's a good thing to be able to point out like, oh, this doesn't hurt workers' productivity, right? We're still able to produce the same amount of things that we did. But I would also just go as far to say is like, even if it weren't the case um, that it helped out capital's bottom line, uh, this would be something that is beneficial for us because we need to understand that the labor fight is not just for higher wages, it's for more autonomy over our own lives. Yeah. Um, and the way that the, our lives have been set up under industrial capitalism is that your life is effectively dominated um, by the needs of the bosses, and that shouldn't be the case. We don't need it as a society to have people working that many hours a week. Um, and in fact, we can live better and more fulfilling lives and also meet a lot more of our external needs too uh, without relying on a four-day work week. I mean, uh, sorry, on a five-day work week and moving to a four-day or even ideally um, to less than that as well. 
Yeah, it's a more extreme version of the fifteen five for fifteen. Really, like it's, yes, yeah. No, but those things are connected, mm-hmm. right? Is like what I'm trying to get at. It's like yeah. the same way that like you should be getting more pay for the hours that you're spending at work. You should understand that the right to be at work less. Um, it's also a part of the labor struggle, right? The, this is like old school Marxism. Um, is that the two things that the capitalist tries to do is tries to extend the workday and to limit the pay per hour. That's like the first sign of labor squeezes. Um, and more and more people are realizing that the pay is too little at work. Uh, but we also need to start making the second demand that the, the hours are too long. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and, and it makes sense intuitively that people are much more productive. Um, you know, but we don't want to fall into like a, a, you know, a trap where we're working less, but like, you know, we have more surveillance and more expectations on ourselves uh, when we're at work and we lose other provisions that we got like sick days and lunch hours and things like that. Right. This is an extremely, um, exciting thing to now have this study done that you can just point to it and say, look, what we're doing right now doesn't even make sense by your own standards. And then use that as a kind of springboard to start demanding more. I mean, it's the best use of the government to give you time uh, to n- for not serving capitalists, um, yeah. right? And this is why, like, education is so good, irrespective of whatever fucking program and content is in that uh, school and the books, whatever fucking books are. As, as long as you don't have to be out fucking busting your ass to put um, money into a capitalist pocket to win. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I just wanted to note one more thing about this study, too. It's like... I know some folks will like to make the argument like, well, Iceland is so small compared to the United States. I think, you know, there's some, there's truth to that, but let's also remember the saturation of the policy in the country. It's 86%, right? So yes, it's a smaller country, but that's an incredible um, amount of people who are now operating on the new terms. Right. Let's get to like, let's get to 50%. (laughs) Get to 15%. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the, the fact is, is that, this model can work on a large scale. And that's the point there. This can work on a systemic level. And we could very easily do this in the United States as well. There's no doubt about it, um, especially when we're in a context right now of more and more people wanting uh, jobs that have better benefits and higher wages, right? Um, that instead of trying to make one person be the only person who holds down a job in a specific industry, right? Spread that around two or three people, Right. You can do a lot for unemployment by sharing jobs without cutting people's pay, right? So don't cut anybody's pay and bring more people into the economy in that way. Um, But instead of having one person doing the work effectively of like five folks, have five people doing doing that work and paying them all, um, you know, the the same amount for one person doing 40 hours a week. There's enough slack in the United States economy to do that. And it would make for a hell of a lot better life for all of us. And these are the kind of, I want to use the word utopian just because that's like the filler, but these are mm-hmm. practical solutions yeah. to a lot of our problems. Right. Um, here's a, uh, uh, so, you know, we like, what's his name? Keynes was big on like, yes. eventually um, the economy is going to develop. Keynes thought by this time we'd be doing this. Yeah. Um, here's just a staff, Edmund S. Morgan, who wrote American Slavery, American Freedom on the Virginia Colony. At the time of European arrival, it took 24 hours of labor a year to feed yourself in corn for Native Americans. So just to say, like, wow, there's maybe better ways that we can be doing some of this stuff. <laughs> yes, I think <laughs> there's really no doubt about it at this point. All right. Um, well, everybody, thank you so much um, for making this happen. 
Uh, episode 27 was a fun one. Uh, Victor is going to be joining us in just a couple minutes. Um, it'll be fun. I think Victor, I, we've had somebody for the post game before, but I'm trying to remember. Have you had Burgess or uh, We may have Joshua, had Burgess, but Victor, sure, yeah. Victor is our first international post game guest. There you go. Uh, so you guys can bother him with your questions about Joe Biden, etc. Remember, um, join us to get access to post game along with our bonus episodes. We have a really fun conversation we did with Andrew Hartman uh, this week on uh, on the culture war and the history of culture war in america uh, i will say uh, hat off to matt he really killed it with that interview um, definitely check um check that out to get access to that join us at patreon.com slash left reckoning remember if you want to ask ask us questions in the post game you can do that in the discord uh, by going to live discussion and adding mod uh, we'd love to hear some y'all's thoughts and questions especially ones um for victor uh, so join us there in just a couple minutes yeah it's Maybe about uh, f- 15 minutes, folks, uh, quarter to 10 Eastern, 945 Central. I'll see you then. Mm-hmm.